So we're in our third sermon of this series, Come to Worship. And you remember that two weeks ago, we, we looked at the Hebrew term yada, which means to lift hands in reverence, in honor of God. And we finished this by listening to the song, I Lift My Hands to Believe Again by Chris Tomlin. And people were lifting hands, holy hands to God. And it was a magnificent experience. Last week, we looked at two Hebrew words. We looked at zamar, which means to make music, whether that's clapping your hands offbeat or not, whether that's tapping your toe, you know, clapping your hand down here, whether it's actually making music like the band does, you offer something to God. It's a spontaneous song to God. And then we looked at the word tada, which means to bring a sacrifice of praise. And so the, the wise men came to Jesus, they bowed down, they opened up their hands and they gave him gifts of praise. And I get to family lunch and my kids are so spiritual. They said, dad, dad, you missed a great opportunity in your sermon. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, because the word is tada, you should have said the wise men bowed down and they said, ta-da, here's your gifts, Jesus. And I said, that is so spiritual. It was pretty good. I, I did not think of it, so I had to bring it in today. Now, I want you to answer yes or no, and I want you to answer out loud. Um, we have some ambient mics out there so that people who are watching online know there's actually somebody in the room. I'm not just looking around for fun, right? I'm looking back and forth at people, not cardboard cutouts. And if you're on Facebook, we want you to, to just answer yes or no. 2020 has been a really strange year. Y'all didn't even hesitate. Anyone want to vote no on 2020? Has, so write that in Facebook, type that in, let us know. Here's the thing. Whether it's been a strange year or not, you really only have three options for the type of year or the type of season that you're in. Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Krista. So we've got a blessed season, we've got a bland season or a broken season. Really, these are the only three options. Either you're blessed beyond measure and you're saying, I don't even deserve the season of life that I'm in, or you're bland, you're just kind of like, Meh. I'm in a season and it's Meh. And man, I don't know when this season's gonna end. You're kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. You know, you just don't know when this season is gonna end, or you're broken. So I just wanna know, let's just do a little truth telling today before we worship the Lord. How many of you are in a blessed season? Don't be ashamed of it. Just, and you need to give God the credit for that. How many of you are in a bland season? I'm going to tell you to give God the credit for that. How many of you are in a broken season? Anyone? Okay. Um, David wrote some words in the Psalms for when he was broken. He was actually running for his life from King Saul. He's hiding out in, in um, caves. He's in danger. He's depressed. He's abandoned. He felt abandoned. He knew very little bit about Saul's plans. People were always telling on, on him to Saul, hey, David's here, and Saul would come and look, and the Lord would warn him, and he would run somewhere else. He knew very little about Saul's plans, but David knew a great deal about God's plans because he had faith in the promises of God. You need to hear this because he had faith in the promises of God, especially if you're in a broken season right now. He was able to uh, triumph over his feelings and his foes. And if you want to triumph over your feelings and your foes, you need to learn from the word of God. You need to learn from Israel's greatest King David. Here's what he had to say. And I want you to help me out a little bit in Psalm 142. He says, I pour out. I want you to say pour out. I want you to say pour out. 
I pour out my complaints before him, talking about God, and tell him all my troubles. This word troubles, I put it in green because I want you to pay attention to this. There's two reasons that you can be in troubles. Troubles actually means a tight spot, a narrow area where I'm confined, I'm constricted, I don't know how I'm going to get out. You can be in a tight spot because of your own stupid decisions, right? Can anyone testify? You can also be in troubles in tight spots because the Holy Spirit of God led you there. And part of how you respond in in your life is you have to figure out which one it is. If it's my own stupid decisions, I have to pray and confess and ask God to restore me, right? And if I've wronged someone, I'm supposed to go to them. That's what the scripture says. It's not a suggestion. It's go and I make things right with them. And then God blesses me and grows me up. But, But if God has led me into this tight space, God knows that on the other side of that tight space is this beautiful, wonderful, wide open opportunity. And you'll never get to that unless you trust God in the midst of the tight space and you pour out your heart to him. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Whenever, whenever I go, wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and to help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Then I pray to you, O Lord. And he's about to give God a special name. You are my place of what? You are my place of refuge. You're all I really want in life. David is being honest here in a tight space, and this tight space is not because of his stupid decisions. That comes later. We know about some of his stupid decisions. This is one where the current king is trying to take out the future king anointed by God, and and he's in a tight spot, and he says, so he's, he's being honest. He's not saying, oh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for the food. He is not in that position. He's saying, sucks to be me right now but I'm going to trust you, God. My life is hard. So I want you to write this down. This comes from my favorite seminary professor. I'm going to say it as long as I have breath. Suffering drastically reduces your wish list. You let someone you love suffer, and all of a sudden it doesn't matter how many presents you have under the tree. It doesn't matter whether you got the raise you thought you deserved. It doesn't even matter if your next door neighbor is mad at you because you play your music too loud, I don't know. Or your dog barks all the time. That one could be real for me. Jeff knows about those. Dogs barking, that is. Suffering drastically reduces your wish list. And I need to tell you this. If God ever has to choose between your holiness and your happiness, he will always choose your holiness. And if suffering is what it takes for you to be drawn to God, then suffering is what God will bring into your life. And you need to know that that if you do not learn how to pour out your heart in the midst of troubles brought on by others, not by you, your suffering will be in vain until you figure it out. See, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. If if life finds you bitter and angry and unforgiving, then you're not going to learn the lesson. But if life finds you humble, Isaiah 66, 2, it says, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and those who tremble at my word. You be that person, God will pour out his blessings on you. You have to decide, am I going to run to him? Am I going to pour out my heart to him? Or or am I going to be bitter? You have a choice. The only way to experience God as a place of refuge is to pour out your heart before him. David uses the same phrase in Psalm 62, 8. And I want you to read these words with me. It's real short. Read it with me. Trust in him. I can't hear you. Trust in him at all times. What are we going to do? Pour out your heart to him for God is our what? Refuge. Refuge literally means shelter from danger. 
Now, at the time David lived, we, we learned about this in, in the book of Judges, but at the time David lived, there's actually six cities of refuge in different parts of Israel so that no one would have to go too far away. God set up these cities of refuge. And literally what they were is if you killed someone by accident, you could flee to these cities, you would have a trial, you would be protected because you didn't intend to kill someone. We're not talking about murder. Now, if you murdered someone, the law said that their closest kin had the right to exact an eye for an eye, a life for a life. They could come and they could kill you legally because you murdered someone, you premeditatedly murdered them. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an accidental thing. So you're cop- chopping down a tree and your axe head flies off, hits Ryan Cantrell and Ryan dies. Now I'm not, I'm not prophesying. I'm just saying it was an accident. I didn't mean for my, my, my axe. I'm not chopping like this. I'm chopping over here. It flies off and, and Ryan dies. That was, did I try to murder him? No. Was it an accident? Yes. You could go to the city of refuge and be protected from Judith taking revenge. Um, you're driving your cart and, and your cart comes loose from the oxen and you run over Michael Thatcher and he dies. Now, did I intend to run over Michael Thatcher and he dies? No. Now, if I was carting under the influence, that's a different story, but I wasn't. It was an accident. I could flee to the city of refuge and I would be protected because it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill them. Refuge is a safe place. So when David says, you are my place of refuge, had a safe place to go. So how many of you had a safe place when you were a kid? John's got both hands up. He was just stretching, but yeah. Maybe a closet. Some of you, it wasn't the closet because what lives in a closet when you're a kid? Monsters. You've seen Monsters, Inc. You go under the covers. That was your safe place. Um, my safe place, I actually had a blankie and I had a special little pillow that I carried with me everywhere, but my safe place. So for the first five years of my life, my twin bed was at the foot of my mom and dad's queen size bed. We didn't have enough room in our house cause I had old, older siblings. So I slept there and, and my safe place was right in between mom and dad's queen size bed and their dresser. There was a space about this wide. I'd get my blankie, I'd get my pillow and I'd go there and I would usually sit there until somebody came. I'm like, huh, you know, somebody noticed me and they would ask me what was wrong. That was my safe place. As you grow older, sometimes your safe place becomes a person. For example, if you're a kid and you think there's monsters in the, in the closet, what happens when mom or dad come in the room? Magically, the monsters are gone, right? So if, they're, if you're in the presence of your safe person, the monsters are gone. Or like if you have monsters underneath, you, y'all remember having monsters underneath the bed and like you thought if one of your limbs was sticking out, they could grab you and pull you under. But if, if your mom and dad came in and closed the closet door, supernaturally, the monsters were sealed in. Or if you had your hands underneath the blankets, you, you, supernaturally, those monsters couldn't get you. You remember that? I do. I remember jumping from the end of my bed. There was a bathroom in my, in my room. And when I'd have to go to the bathroom, I'd stand up and I'd run to the end of the bed and I would jump as far as I could so that the monsters couldn't grab me and pull me down when I went to the bathroom at night. <laughs> when you get older though, right? Your monsters become something different than something under the bed. It becomes rejection, it becomes loneliness. Your monster might be bitterness, Financial collapse, marriage collapse, children getting in trouble. We all have monsters that attack us. And no matter what your monster is, I can tell you this, no matter what your age is, no matter what your monster is, God wants to be your safe place. He wants to be your refuge. Your heavenly father loves to be needed by you. I love it when my kids say, hey, dad, can you help me? All my kids are, my youngest is 20. My oldest is about to be 26. I guess it's 21 and 26. Both their birthdays are coming up. And I love it still when when they call and say, hey, dad, can you help me? 
love that. Your heavenly father loves it when you call upon him. Today, before we walk out of here, I'm going to ask you to pour out your heart before God and to tell him what you need from him. And I'm just going to tell you now he wants to meet your needs. But before we do that, there's two things I want you to remember. First one is remember God's faithfulness in the past. As you cry out to him, you need to remember the things he's done for you in the past. I want us to look at Psalm chapter 42, or the 42nd Psalm. Um, We aren't sure who wrote it, but a lot of people think David wrote this when he's running from his son, Absalom. Absalom wanted to kill David, take over the kingdom. That's a bad day, right? Hey, king, what's on your agenda? Not to be killed by my son. That's a bad day. You probably haven't had that day. And many people were saying to him, if your son wants to kill you, where's your God? We're actually making fun of him for his faith in God because his son wanted to kill him. And that would, be, that would cause you to be at a low point in life, I think. Here's what he says in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? You ever cried yourself to sleep when tears have been your food? You're hurting, you feel all alone? The greatest king in Israel's history, while he's crying out and saying, people are making fun of me, God. Why is this happening? He says, I'm going to trust you. See, your, your memories can either drive you towards God or your memories can trouble your heart. They can open up new wounds, you know, pull the scab back off as you're, as you're remembering. And, and I want you to notice which one it was for David in Psalm 42. These things, he says, what's this next word? These things I remember as I do what? Pour out my soul. Two weeks ago, we did the song, um, I Lift My Hands, and here's what it says. I lift my hands to believe again. You are my refuge. You are my strength. As I pour out my heart, these things I remember. Those words to that song came from this psalm. I remember you are faithful, God. You're faithful, God, forever. These things I remember. How, and then look what he remembers. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. With what? shouts of joy. We're going to look at that in just a second. And Thanksgiving among the what kind of throng? How many times have you described a church service as a festive throng? How many times have you described a church service as a bunch of dead people sitting on their rears? That's not what David remembered. As I pour out my heart, I remember the deacons. These things I remember as I ache from within, as the weight of the world crushes my spirit. I remember. I remember leading the group of worship in God's house. I remember shouts of joy, times of thanksgiving before God. Every now and again, when I'm, when I'm crying out, pouring out my heart to God, I need to remember his faithfulness. When did David remember? In the midst of pouring out. That brings me to the next Hebrew word that I want to talk to you about. It's, it's Shabbat. I want you to say that, Shabbat. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it's like you're hawking a loogie, Shabbat, right? Here's what it means. To shout with a voice of victory, to commend, to glory, to triumph. It's used 11 times in Scripture. And here's one of them, Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will shabach, I will sing, I will shout with a voice of praise and triumph to my God. I will do that as long as I live. And in your name, I will what? I will yada. I'm going to shout to you, God. 
and I'm going to yada. I remember Janie and I standing uh, in, a, in a conference in, I think it was 1998 in Chicago, Illinois, the first time we heard this song, Shout to the Lord. We were weeping, we're holding each other. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy uh, at the work of your hands. Forever I'll praise you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares with the promise I have. Avenue. Shout to the Lord. And most of the time, that's what it means. We shout to God. We shout to him. Today, some of you are going to cry out. You're going to shout to God for the first time in your life. You've, you may have turned your back on God, but he's never turned his back on you. And I just got to tell you that, that a couple of years ago, we were at a very low point in our life. And I got a couple of good friends that are, that are pastors. And one of them said to me, he said, Doug, I want you to shout to the Lord. I'd never shouted to the Lord before. I didn't know the word Shabbat. I'd never learned that word. And so I was driving around in my pickup, my white pickup that was stolen on a mission trip. Um, I'm driving around in my white pickup, and I'm, I'm sick of, of the situation we're in. And so I thought, I'm going to shout to God. And because I was so crushed, my shout was like, I'm not making it up. I went, Demonic oppression in the cab of that truck was so overwhelming that I could not even make a sound. And so I tried again. I went, ah! And I told Janie, I'm driving around the loop. Y'all may have seen me that day. And I'm going, ah! And I kept going until I could shout to the Lord. Tears streaming down my face. And I said, God, you alone, you alone are the one that can deliver us. And the more I shouted to the Lord going around the loop, the more he began to pour his mercy and his grace and his strength into my heart. And I'm not saying that everything switched that day, but my heart did and my attitude before God did as I cried out to him, I trust you alone, God, and I need you to do something. Now, that's one, one use of the term Shabbat, but there's another term, and it's in Psalm 145. I mean, another use, same term, Psalm 145.4. One generation shall Shabbat your works. We shall shout your works to the next generation and shall declare your mighty acts. It is vital. Would you, would you agree with me? This is yes or no. You can put this on Facebook, yes or no. It is vital that this generation reaches the next generation because we are one generation from extinction in Christianity. And I poured out 19 years of my life to reach teenagers for Christ. And then I felt like I need, to, I need to have a church. I need to be pouring into adults. And, and, and I'm praying over and over, God, show me a group of men. We need a few good men who will stand up and, and the word of God not be a suggestion, but be the foundation to be our, our um, authority. And by the way, if you can't be under the authority of God and under the authority of people in your life, you've got no business being an authority position in a church. The moment you say you can no longer be an authority under someone that's in an authority position, get your butt out of that church. And don't go to another church until you get right with God. Because all you're going to do is take that darkness, that oppression with you. And you're going to be disobedient and rebellious in another place. 
This shout to the Lord is not for the purpose of pumping up the crowd. You ever been to a concert where there's thousands and thousands of people and they shout, and it's pumping up the present crowd? This shout is for the next generation. I shout to the Lord. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Jeremiah and he's called the weeping prophet. And you think you've had a bad life. Jeremiah, the reason he's the weeping prophet is because he's always crying, always going, God, you, you, he actually says to God, God, you deceived me. God's like, no, I didn't. But anyway, that's how Jeremiah felt. He was thrown into a pit. He was thrown into a cistern and given bread to eat all because he, he was faithful. He was obedient to the word of God. And in chapter three, for 20 verses, he just lays it out. He's tired. The anguish, the complaints here. You should read the whole chapter, but let me just read a couple of verses to you. Lamentations three, 19 through 23. The thought of my suffering and homelessness, he's homeless, is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss, but look what happens. Yet I still dare to hope when I do what? I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. Morning by morning, new mercies. I see. In the middle of pouring out his soul, Jeremiah remembers the goodness of God. And some of you need to remember what it was like to be lost and to be found. And that if it were not for the goodness of God, you would not even have a breath to breathe today. Think back to what he's brought you through and remember. Think back when you called on him, he forgave you. The weight of sin was lifted. Remember when God answered a prayer one time, there was no way anyone else could do anything, but God did it. It was so miraculous, you look back and say, only God. Remember the time you were hurting, you felt all alone, and a song came on the radio, or a verse came, and it spoke to your heart. You may have read that verse 20 times before, but it spoke to you. It ministered to you. I still dare to hope when I remember this. Remember the time you came to church, and and it it was like the message was handwritten for you. I've had people say, have you been listening in? Or did my wife tell you about what we went through this week? No, they didn't. That's God's message for you. When I struggle, I remember 2003, our church was less than a year old. My family went on vacation with my extended family. We were dirt poor. It couldn't afford to go anywhere. So wherever mom wanted to go, my mom, that's where we went on vacation. We came back from vacation, and two of my closest friends had left the church. There were only 10 families in the church. When two families leave, it's very obvious. I thought my heart was going to explode. I cried out to God, and God said, who called you to start this church? And I said, you did. And he said, then get up and go do what you're supposed to do. The next year, 2004, we went on vacation with my family. We came back and a family had left. One of my closest friends had left. And God said that what they do is not your concern. You do what I told you. And so God ministered to me. I put on my big boy pants. I kept going and we stopped going on vacation because people leave the church. When we go on, I'm not making this up. We quit going on vacation for years because we're like, we can't leave. People will, people will leave. When life is difficult, I remember our very first baptism. Keith and Heather Lively in a guy's swimming pool had their arms around each other and we baptized them at the same time. And then our second baptism was Rachel Washburn, my daughter, Rachel Trim now. When life gets tough, I remember the goodness of God. I remember that my kids are in the family of God. We pray every night for Waylon 
my four-year-old grandson, for the day he steps across the line of faith. I pray that his heart would be tender to God. I pray that he would hear God and be radically obedient to God all the days of his life. And I pray, God, can you, can you help me have influence in his life so that he'll come into the family? Before I leave his life, I want all my family to know Christ. I want to see it. Whenever things are bad, God usually sends somebody to remind me that he's been faithful in the past and he's going to be faithful again. He's done it before, he'll do it again. That's one of our songs, do it again. Pour out your complaint, tell him you don't understand, tell him it doesn't make sense, but even as you do, look back at his faithfulness. And sometimes, sometimes in the midst of it, I'm not going to tell you to do this in the mall or, or you know, go to Walmart and shout to the Lord. I'm not telling you that. But sometimes in your car, you need to shabak. You need to shout to the Lord. We sing that song, Even If, by Mercy Me. I know you're able, I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, I'll still sing. I'll still believe and I'll still sing. It is well with my soul. So first, you need to remember. Second thing, as you pour out your heart, trust God's power for your future. If he's done it in the past, he's going to do it again. I'm going to see a victory. We sing that song. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. The God I serve knows the triumph. My God will never fail. Song. The first, ver- first line is Rachel's favorite line of the song. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. My favorite one is, my God has never failed. He knows only how to triumph. You remember his power for your future. Now, this brings me to a word that I bet every one of you have heard, at least the longer word. This is the root word. It's halal. Say halal. It's the root word of hallelujah. Interesting little tidbit. Hallelujah is the only word that is the same in every language around the world. And hallelujah means God saves. It's praise God. Hallelujah. Yah is short for Yahweh. Praise God. God saves. We're, ca- we're talking about halal though. So here's what it means. It means to boast, to celebrate. It means, somebody read this. What kind of enthusiasm? Loud enthusiasm. Come on, come on help me out. What kind of enthusiasm? Thank you. Loud enthusiasm in celebration of God. Halal appears 96 times in the Bible, and each time the word appears, it's a celebration of the greatness of God. There's nothing shy about halal. Halal is not quiet praise. This is my favorite part. Halal praise is seen and heard and is what? Contagious. You know why teenagers like to go to youth camp? You know why children like to go to preteen retreat and preteen camp? Because it is halal worship. It's not dead worship. You don't leave a, a worship time at youth camp or or at um, a college. What do they do? Passion, the passion series when they do that, or preteen retreat. You never leave a worship time going, man, that was dead praise. It is halal. It is seen. It is heard. It is contagious. Look at Psalm sixty-nine thirty. I will praise. I will halal God in a way that's seen and heard is contagious and glorify him with thanksgiving. Psalm twenty two twenty two. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly where at church I will praise. I will halal you in a way that's seen and heard and contagious. Psalm 109.30, with my mouth I will greatly extol. Extol means to praise enthusiastically the Lord in the great throng. What kind of throng? That means a lot of people in the great throng of worshipers I, worshipers, I will 
praise. I will halal. I will sing and make music to God in a way that is seen and heard and is contagious. Psalm 149.3, let them praise. Let them halal his name with dancing. With dancing? I grew up Baptist. I'm not kidding. When I was at Baylor, not making this up. You didn't call it a dance. You, call, you called it a foot function. I'm not making it up. And you couldn't have foot functions on campus. We could have foot functions a block off of campus, and we did. Now it's legal to have a dance. You can call it a dance, but a foot function. How stupid is that? Let them praise, halal his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. Everything we do must flow out of worship. And let me tell you, when you get burned out, it's because you've skipped worship. You remember when Jesus was tempted? Satan says, bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, worship the Lord and do what? Serve him only. And the, the order is extremely important. If you're burned out, then your worship is out of balance. You're serving too much and you're not worshiping enough. Now, can I be honest with you? The majority of the people in this room that are watching, that is not your problem. <laughs> if we were just to look at how much you worship compared to how much you serve, it's anemic. And, and it's sad to me that every church I've ever been in, it's the 20-80 principle. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That should not be. In a church where people halal, where they yada, where they zamar, where they ta-da, where they, where they bring a sacrifice of praise. The most important activity is the church. And that's why the most of our, our budget goes to Sundays. Yes, we have a budget, budget for children. We have a budget for youth. We have a budget for CR. We have a budget for, for all these different things. But the vast majority of it comes right here because this is the most vital thing we do. And this is the thing we will do for eternity. We will worship him. So we need to be practicing and we need to be better at it. Somebody says, are you telling me to fake it? Nope. I'm telling you to remember. Remember what it was like to be lost and then to be found, to be dead and then to be made alive. As I pour out my heart, I remember. I love Tony Evans. He's one of my favorite preachers. Heard him speak many times. Got some of his sermons, uh, MP3s. Here's what he says about faith. Faith is acting like it is so, even when it's not so, in order that it might be so, simply because God said so. Isn't that good? Faith is acting like it's so, even when it's not so, nor it might be so, because you said so. You see, here's, here's what I want you to understand. Faith is verifiable. Next slide. Faith is verifiable. That means you never have to guess if you have it, because your actions will show whether you have any faith. Faith is made real when you choose to obey God, even when you can't see. In fact, that's what faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a spiritual reality. In Psalm 102, the writer's at the lowest point you can imagine. If you've ever been at the bottom of the pit and ready to give up, then you need to look what happens. Psalm 102, verse 1. O Lord, hear my prayer and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in trouble. There's that word again. When I'm in a tight spot. Turn your ear towards me. Answer me quickly when I call. Skip down to verse 7. I lie awake, I am, I am like a lonely bird on a rooftop. All day long my enemies insult me. Those who ridicule me use my name as a curse. I eat ashes like bread and my tears are mixed with my drink. And then there's three words that change everything. 
My life is falling apart. I do not understand. Some of you are about to have one of these moments, and here it is. But you, Lord. Some of you need to have a but you, Lord, moment today as you pour out your heart before God. But you, Lord, will sit on your throne forever. Your fame will endure to every generation. I don't understand, Lord, but you have all wisdom. I don't like it, Lord, but you're powerful. I'm alone, but you're with me. I don't know what to do, but you are still on your throne. And then look in verse 17. But you, Lord, will listen to the prayers of the destitute. You will not reject their pleas. Some of you are going to have a but you, Lord, moment for the first time ever. You're going to pour out your heart. You're going to complain. You're going to be honest. You're going to let it rip from the depths of your soul. And at some point in that process, here's my prayer for you, is that you'll push through the pain to the point of praise. I don't understand. I don't like it. I wish there was some other way. But, but if you are a God of love, this must be the most loving way you can get me where you want me to go. If you are faithful, this must be the most faithful thing you can do for me to get me through the trouble, the tight spot, to this grand plan you have for my future. You have plans to bless your people and to prosper them, not to harm them, but to give them a hope in the future. But you, Lord, are working all things to bring about the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But you, Lord, some of you have lost a loved one, some of you are watching a loved one die, and it's the worst thing you can imagine. But you, Lord, will never leave me or forsake me, and I need to push through the pain to the point of praise. So we're going to do something. I'm going to set my timer, and we're going to have two minutes where you pour out your heart to God. It's just going to be silent unless somebody starts weeping, and that's okay if somebody starts weeping. We're, we're family here. I want you to pour out your heart to God. And then we're going to practice halal. Um, I forgot to put it on there, but you can look it up online. It's, uh, we're going we're gonna to sing, I raise a hallelujah. We have to cut it off of Facebook because of copyright issues, but you can look that up, and I would challenge you if you're at home. Do two minutes of pouring out your heart before God, and then turn on, I praise a hallelujah, because it says, I raise, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I'm going to sing. In the middle of a storm, louder and louder, I'm going to let your praises roar out of the ashes. Hope will arise. What's the next part? What's defeated? Death. Yeah, how could I forget that? Death is defeated. The king is alive. So we'll see you next week, Facebook. Those of you here in the room, it's time to pour out your heart before God. Y'all saw the mom and dad, right, with the kids and they're raising their hands. That's part of how you shabak to the next generation. One generation shall praise your name, shall shout with victory to your name for the next generation. It's part of what we got to do. And so I'm, I'm not trying to manufacture anything. I want you to come into the presence of a king. And when you remember and you come into the presence of a king, it will change the way you worship. All right? So next week, whoever's here, I know it's Christmas weekend. If you want to watch from home, that's fine. But we will have worship next week um, at 10 a.m. Two weeks from today, we're going to wrap up this series with bowing down. And I hope you'll plan to be here for that, um, that day. Um, we have one basket at the back, and that is our joy basket. 
That's how we give at New Life, or you can give online at nlccp.com, and you can give that way. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness in giving, even in the midst of a, of a pandemic. A lot of churches are in, in trouble right now. I had someone ask me the other day, they said, did you, did you apply for the payroll protection plan? And I said, no, we didn't need it. And, um, and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I didn't feel like that was right. I couldn't, before God, um, make that application because our church didn't need it. And God has just been faithful. And so that's all glory to God. Um, as you leave this place today, remember, remember the reason for the season. And I want to ask you to, to practice these words of praise um, as, as we come close to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed.